Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am looking at Proverbs today, kind of Proverbs Friday. And in 11, verse 2, it says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. And Proverbs 16, 5 says, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. And Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. God is not out to hurt your pride. He is out to kill your pride. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. I hope with Alex McFarland. He's a Christian apologist. He's an author and evangelist. He's a religion and culture expert and a regular guest on the show. Alex, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I love those verses. I was at my Bible study this morning and um, my friend says, do you guys ever talk about pride on your show? And I said, I don't think we have in a long time. So I said, I'm going to do it today. And I've just the guy to talk to uh, it about, and that's Alex McFarland. Well, to God be the glory. Do you know what? That was one of the first memory verses I learned as a little boy. I was at uh, Vacation Bible School. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And I learned that as a as a child at Bible school. And it would be a lot of years later that I would come to know Christ personally as my Savior. But that verse has always, always resonated within my heart, and uh, uh, I guess I need to hear it, you know, because uh, there is that human tendency to be prideful, isn't there? There is, and there's a fine line, I, I would imagine, between the kind of pride that God speaks out against and then the kind of pride you would have uh, in a child for a job well done or something that you you worked really hard on. And God sure. gave you the giftedness to do, and the job was well done, and you feel a sense of accomplishment. And gratification. And gratification. Is there anything wrong with that? No, I, I don't think so. In fact, and, and you know, like so much of life, Bill, uh, the key is balance. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes says it is good for a man to enjoy the work of his hands. In, in other words, take pleasure in this. But I think about this um, – Paul, I forget exactly where it is, but Paul, you know, the Apostle Paul uh, asks a lot of rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question is one in which the answer is like really obvious. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, what? Do you not know that you are not your own? You're bought with a price. And in reality, for the born-again Christian, you know, we're not owners, but we're stewards. But Paul asks a question, and I think this speaks to why we can't be prideful in a, in a haughty human sense. Paul asks this question, what do you have that you did not receive? And in reality, I mean, everything we have, every blessing of life is from God. Uh, if we're alive, it's because the good Lord gave us the gift of life and created us. If we have singing ability, 
uh, it's because God gave us this or that talent, you know, whether it's to write a book or build a house or, uh, you know, achieve wealth or, or whatever. And that's why we can't be prideful. It's okay to take satisfaction in it, but we need to always be mindful that God in his power and mercy gave us every gift. We, none of us could ever legitimately say, look at what I've accomplished, because really all these blessings of life are gifts from God entrusted to us. Well said, Alex. And would you also agree that one of the deadliest things about pride is it keeps people, many people, from accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior? Because oh, you, yes. Because you have to admit you know, sin and acknowledge it in, in your own strength. You can do nothing to inherit eternal to inherit eternal life. That's true. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Uh, in fact, we deserve judgment for our sin. And and here's here's the paradox: um, the surest way to destroy yourself is to pridefully think you don't need God, and yet the surest way to elevate yourself is to humbly bow before God and to admit how desperately we need God. So pride is very counterproductive. And uh, Bill, I've shared the gospel. I'm sure you've shared the Lord with people too, who uh, they found it a bitter pill to swallow, to have to admit that they're a sinner uh, or that they need Christ. But in reality, I mean, we, we are absolutely destitute and indigent without Jesus Christ. I mean, he is our all in all. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a dear lady, she's in heaven. Her name was Vivian Keegan. She was a neighbor uh, in the community where I grew up in rural North Carolina. And uh, Mrs. Keegan was a devout Christian. And, uh, you know, it was one of those people that after I became a believer, I, I would look back and I would think of people. And I was like, oh, I, I remember, boy, they were they were devoted, you know, devoted to the Lord. And Mrs. Keegan was one of those. Her Christianity was very clear. But she would always say, God is my source. God is my source. And I thought, what does that mean? But he is our source, the source of our life, the source of our salvation, our provider, our protector, our instructor. And, uh, you know, I, I think the greatest comfort in life, and there is no fear and we don't need to be apprehensive, is when we remember that Jesus is our provider and he is our all in all. In fact, one of my favorite verses, uh, Matthew 6, verse 8, says that the Father knows what we need even before we ask. I mean, that will liberate you from stress and fear, won't it? If yes. we realize that God in all things, the good Lord is our source. Mm-hmm. In Psalm 10, verse 4, it says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So there's a great illustration of someone so consumed with themselves that their thoughts are, are there is no God. So question is, are there people who are just unreachable? Well, uh, apart from the con- convicting work of the Holy Spirit, any of us would be unreachable. Yes, you know, because agree. in and of ourselves, I mean, none of us really seek God. Uh, there, you know, First John chapter two, fifteen through seventeen talks about. Uh, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life separates us from God. But uh, 
the Holy Spirit, God in his mercy, you know, the one that C.S. Lewis called the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit pursues us, woos us, tries to get our attention. And, you know, hopefully the day will come when we, we say, Lord, I hear you, Lord, I will turn to you. But um, I've asked a few atheists because, I, you know, I, I've really tried to understand where atheists are coming from. And I know different you know, everybody's different, but I've talked to a lot of atheists. And, you know, there have been a few atheists that I've asked, you know, is there anything that would cause you to acknowledge God or believe in God? And a few have given some answers, and then I've had a few that have said no. And I said, well, then you have a priori ruled out the possibility of God. I mean, that's not reasonable. Um, you, you've adjudicated beforehand that nothing would cause you to acknowledge God. And that's, uh, I, I think only the Holy Spirit can break through somebody who's that obstinate. But um, Augustine, 1600 years ago, in uh, Augustine's writings, he talks about dealing with, um, and I love the way he uses this. He says, what shall we say then? to those who demand an ocular demonstration. Now, ocular means vision, something you can see. In other words, somebody says, well, show me God. Give me evidence for God. And Augustine says, okay, the resurrection, the fulfilled prophecy. Jesus showed his authenticity in a number of ways. Um, And Augustine said, but what shall we say when we show them what they demand Yet they say, not that, not that. And I know what he's talking about. Now, Augustine lived 354 to 430, by the way. But so even 1600 years ago, the skeptic says, okay, give me proof. Give me an ocular demonstration. And so you say, okay, well, fulfill prophecy, virgin born, sinless life. And uh, hey, Bill, I've been to the Holy Land. We led a group over there in 2014. And I mean, you can even archaeologists that are not necessarily believers will tell you that Jesus of Nazareth stood here at the pool of Siloam. Jesus of Nazareth was in the house of Caiaphas. I mean, there's a synagogue at Capernaum you can visit, and there's an inscription on a column because apparently about 300 years after the life of Jesus, they renovated this particular synagogue at Capernaum. And there's an inscription, I've seen it, where it basically says Jesus spoke here and our grandparents heard him. I mean, it's amazing. So, wow. But yet skeptics will, will say, well, Jesus never existed. But when you give the proof, they'll say, well, that's not sufficient proof either. And I guess the, the, my point in talking about Augustine noted that too, that they say, not that, not that. So we're a sinful, stiff-necked people apart from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, aren't we? Yes, we are. You know, when you reference 1 John 2.16, Alex, I'll read it again. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of this world. When we think of des- the um, lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, we can go back as far as the temptation of Eve in the garden. Yeah, We hear about it the first time back then, and we think here she is in the Garden of Eden. There's two people on the earth, and there is the lust of the eyes 
and the lust of the flesh going on in the garden. Yeah, yeah. Uh, remember, it says, when Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was good to make them wise, they took and they ate. And uh, Satan caused the fall, He, but although Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. But here's the thing. Here's, here's all of history. If you want to understand all the pain, all the tears, all the violence, all of everything, the devil could not kill God. Right. You read Isaiah 14. He tried. Mm-hmm. He tried to. Uh, and, and you read in, in Revelation where one-third of the angels, m- most scholars believe, when Revelation talks about the dragon, that old serpent, swept one-third of the stars from the heavens, most scholars, and, and there are other scriptures that play into this, but most scholars believe that Lucifer conned one-third of the angels into joining him in a failed coup attempt of heaven. Well, Satan couldn't kill off God, so he's tried to harm the ones made in God's image. That's what all of history boils down to. I mean, really. Um, The temptation of Adam and Eve causing the fall. Humans now have a sin nature. Now, fortunately, God... uh, designated his son Jesus to be our sin bearer before even the foundation of the world. And so by definition, an omniscient God is not going to be outplayed. Um, Jesus in love was designated to be the savior even before the human race fell. But um, the, the most important thing of life, Bill, as you know, and I'm sure so many of your listeners know, the most important thing of life is to have a relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. All the money, all the fame, any achievement, any accomplishment, any of the world's accolades mean nothing if you step into eternity without Christ. Mm-hmm. I'll take a little break. I'm talking to Dr. Alex McFarland, author of over 20 books and really great hair. We'll take a short break and be right back. Farland, he is, uh, of course, an author, an apologist, an evangelist, and a amazing thinker. I love the way you think. And uh, Alex, right before the, we went to break, you were talking about Satan's attempted coup of trying to overthrow uh, heaven. And I thought, huh, I was wondering when I think of uh, Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, where he suggested that God, that Jesus worship him, um, does does Satan desire worship from followers? You know, I heard a guy, a pretty famous celebrity, say that he has not gotten COVID because he's a, a satanic worshiper. And I thought, does Satan even receive worship? Does he even care about anybody? Wow, that that is a great question. Uh, you know, I, I truly believe Satan probably doesn't care about worship. He cares about 
I mean, he is in a malicious rage yeah. against God. And, I mean, you know, talk about malice. I mean, this is, you know, in in legal terms, lawsuits sometimes include, you know, the words with forethought and malice. All right, it's one thing to hurt somebody or maybe to steal somebody's stuff or whatever. But the devil knows the spiritual dynamics of this world. And the human soul will last eternally. Well, really everlastingly. Only, let's speak with linguistic precision. Only God is eternal forever. So uh, think about this. Um, in, for those that are geometry people, you, you'll get what I'm going to say. In, in your geometry book, you know, there, there's a line, and it goes both ways, in all, you know, forever. There'll be a point on each end. That's a line. That's like God. And then an animal is like a segment, a start and a stop. But a person is like a ray. There's a beginning point, and then it goes on everlastingly. You remember? Uh, okay. So the devil knows that our soul is everlasting. I wonder that every human... You have everlasting life. The question is, though, where will that life be experienced, in heaven or hell? And, you know, the Bible talks about the soul uh, doesn't die, and, and it doesn't. Now, there is separation from God in hell for those that reject Jesus. But talk about the malice, the the unspeakable malice of, of Satan, the mm. malevolence, yeah. to know that People who die without Jesus will suffer forever, and yet he, he lures them into that. That, and, and I don't use this word lightly, but it's the strongest word that I can muster. That is wicked. Satan, Satan is wicked. Yes. And that's why we, we must flee to the sanctuary of Jesus. And... Uh, I might have told this story, but I was at Liberty University, and the vice president of Liberty at one time, he's in heaven now, but incredible scholar, Dr. Harold Wilmington. And there were about 400 students in a room doing Q&A, and, and a girl asked the question, Dr. Wilmington, um, does the devil know how the, the Bible concludes? And he winds up in the lake of fire. And Dr. Wilmington said, oh, of course, Satan certainly must know this because Satan quotes Scripture and twists Scripture. Certainly the devil knows how the story ends, and he is defeated and consigned to the lake of fire. And the girl said, well, then why does he persist? If Satan knows he can't kill off God, why, why, does, why does he continue? You could have heard a pin drop, 400 students in for those that might have gone to Liberty University, DeMoss Hall, you remember that bill. Dr. Wilmington reflected, and it was such a brilliant answer. I wrote it down. I've remembered it 25 years. Dr. Wilmington said about Satan's, you know, campaign against God. Said, he said, that's the insanity of sin. To follow and serve Satan is to align yourself with the greatest cosmic loser of all time. <laughs> And, and I had to write, I was wow, to follow and, and serve Satan is to align yourself with the greatest cosmic loser of all time. And, and it's true. And the good news, even for, for the Christian, what Christianity doesn't promise is a life free of any pain or trouble or stress. 
even some of the most godly people sometimes suffer great setbacks and pains. But what Christianity does promise is not only that your sins are forgiven and you'll go to heaven one day, but everything you do post-salvation, you do for Christ, you yield to the Lord, you serve the Lord, you you allow the Spirit of God to grow you and shape you, you're, you're, you're going to be rewarded. And here, even in this life, you become a better you than you otherwise would have been without Jesus. Um, you know, the world is full of suffering, but the world, as Helen Keller said, the world is also full of the overcoming of suffering. And the beautiful thing about salvation, sure, it's a home in heaven, and it's salvation from hell. But as one skeptic who came to Christ said to me, this thing about Christianity, it's just a better way to live. And we, in Christ, we are thoroughly victorious. We really are. Mm-hmm. So getting back to the pride of life, just a couple of minutes left, Alex, I would, I would guess that the most evil temptation that's being offered is, in fact, the pride of life. It was the very sin that had Satan uh, kicked out of heaven. Yeah. We want to be our own authority in life. We want to be God in our life, which is that ultimate pride of life. Yeah, yeah. And even among a born-again Christian, I mean, even if you're a, a believer, uh, and, and I think we guys are susceptible to this especially, there is the temptation to, you know, do things my way. And we, we do things and we don't pray about it enough. And we, we run ahead of the Lord. I, I'm guilty of that. You know, we, we men can be very type A. And uh, some, sometimes the Lord has to humble us. And we have to come back and say, Lord, I, you know, I, I need you. I, I need you. Um, John 15, verse 5, Christ said, apart from me, uh, Christ said, apart from me, we can do nothing, right? There was a great evangelist years ago named uh, Dr. Vance Havner. And Havner said, think of, think of uh, the, letter, the letters I-A-N, Christian. Without Christ, I am nothing. That was the last sermon he ever preached. By the way, Vance Havner was the guy that encouraged Billy Graham to become an evangelist. Wow. That was a pretty good day's work, I think. I think so, but, too. Uh, apart from Christ, I am nothing. I like that. Alex, are you, uh, do you have your big weekend coming this weekend? We do. Thanks, Bill. And, and let me ask everybody listening to please pray for us. Um, in fact, in, in about 30 to 45 minutes, we start Truth for a New Generation. We're in South Carolina, and we've got some great speakers and people coming in from 14 or 15 states. And uh, it starts out with a concert, a wonderful band from Nashville called the Bird Songs. Awesome. And th- they're going to do a concert, and we'll be sharing the gospel and That's talking about biblical worldview. Fantastic. We'll be praying for you. Thank you so much, Alex, and blessings on your weekend. Bless you, my dear friend. Thank Thanks. you so Bye. much. Dr. Alex McFarland has been my guest. Go to alexmcfarland.com after a short break. We'll continue our study in the book of John, part two with Dr. Greg Heddington. Be right back.
Okay, I've heard from a lot of you that are said you are loving the study on the book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington, so I've made out a list. I just want you to know my name is at the very top. We're so glad to have uh, <laughs> Greg back as we continue uh, part two of our lesson on John chapter 20. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. What? Welcome to part two of our lesson covering John 20, first 18 verses. And the title for this lesson is Super Sunday, so this is part two. Now, let me give a short review what I said in part one of this lesson, we're looking at the greatest event in human history, which is the resurrection of Jesus, that provides the opportunity for people to come into a full relationship with our Creator as Jesus overcame death just as He said He would. And then 50 days after the resurrection, this Gospel of John introduces us to the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which is made available to all who put their trust in Jesus. And when we know Jesus, the living Lord today, who gives us purpose for life, then we know the Creator. Or, to put it in one sentence, Jesus is the human face of the Creator God. Now, we've heard those words so often that they lose their shock value. But to the first people who heard Jesus say, when you see me, you've seen the Father in heaven, those words startle people almost beyond belief. Now, Let's think of the universe for a minute. Light travels, I'll do a little math here, a little astronomy. Um, I didn't do well myself, but I've, I've gotten better at it. <laughs> Bill, I bet you have too. I have. All right. Well, light travels at what speed? About 186,000 miles per second, which I can barely comprehend. We know that a light year is the distance light can travel in one year. And in one year, light can travel about 5.9 trillion miles. Now, the closest star to Earth is what? Our moon. Our moon, get this, is 1.25 light years away from Earth. In other words, what that means is we now know that the moon is over 6 trillion miles from the Earth, and that's the closest star to Earth, and that's why it is so visible to our eyes at night. So people who wrote Scripture a few thousand years ago, of course, did not know these statistics, but they had a good sense that the universe was enormous, but they didn't know how enormous. So when they heard Jesus say, when you look at me, you're looking at the creator of all things, they thought to themselves, wow, is Jesus telling us that the unknowable creator God can now be known? The one who created day and night and planets and stars and aardvarks and all creation? Well, the answer was yes. And as Jesus said, again, when you see me, you have seen the Father in heaven, those words shattered all false images of God that people had carried with them for centuries. So just think of it. Jesus is the human face of God. <clears throat> we have to sometimes just let that sink in. And so when we read in Scripture about how Jesus was the most loving and inclusive person who ever walked the face of earth, we are, in fact, talking about what? We're talking about the very character of our Creator, who wants us to call Him, get this, Father. Hmm. He wants us to call Him His Father. Now, ironically, the only people with whom Jesus did not get along with were the ones who wanted to live apart. 
who decided to go their own way, just like our very first parents in the Garden of Eden, who chose to be autonomous. Jesus never has and he never will impose himself on anyone, and he gives everyone a chance to follow him or go their own way, accept or reject. That's the decision all people must make in life. We either choose the one who has proven his love for us and is available to empower us every day with his divine power, which the Apostle Paul describes as, quote, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, or we can live our lives by ourselves, apart from the life he has always intended for us to live. And so we come to the foundation of our faith, the resurrection. The resurrection validates everything Jesus taught about his substitutionary death for our sin and about his divinity. Now, someone may quibble about whether Jonah escaped from the mouth of a whale after three days or whether Noah was the skipper of a floating zoo, which included all the animals on earth, including aardvarks. But the decision that we must get right is that God came to earth in human flesh, lived a perfect life, was crucified as a substitute for our sins, and then came back to life three days later and is alive today. That is the foundation of our faith. Now, we all serve someone, and then the end of our life comes. I mean, the odds are inevitable. Maybe not today, but at one point, we're not going to be around. We're going to get buried. Somebody's going to throw dirt on top of our grave, and they're all going to go back home and have potato salad. So you follow a dead God, you'll end up just like him. If you follow a living God, you'll end up just like him, living forever with God and other believers. So that's the review. Now for this week, Roman number one, the resurrection. So let's look at John's narrative of that first Super Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene and perhaps another woman, it depends on the version that you read. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are a little bit different. Uh, Mary and another woman go to the tomb for Jesus to take, in order to take spices to anoint his body. And to, to their horror, they discover this stone is rolled away and the body is gone. So as they begin to consider what to do next, two men in white clothes, and the original Greek describes this whiteness as gleaming like lightning, and there they are, and the women are terrified, but the two men say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, just like he told you. Well, Mary hears this, and then she takes off and runs as fast as she can to tell the apostles. Now, the Gospel of Mark tells us the apostles are skeptical of the report because, well, she's just a woman, and after a while, I mean, after, after at the point in time, the women, uh, their, their word was no good in court. But nevertheless, Peter and John take off running to the tomb, and in typical male fashion, which shows nothing has changed over the centuries, uh, and still feel competitive with each other and try to outdo the other to prove their superior masculinity because, really, everyone's insecure. So the writer John feels the need to mention that he outruns Peter and gets to the tomb first. What is even more interesting about this, this, this comment 
is that in the first century of Palestinian culture, grown men did not run. Children ran. The Greeks ran. We know the Greeks ran because when they originated the ancient Olympic Games in 776 B.C., running was a primary part of the competition. But for a grown Jewish man to run was considered shameful. In fact, the only other time the New Testament describes a man running is in the story Jesus tells in Luke 15 of what we've learned to understand is called the prodigal son, when the father runs to meet his wayward son who is walking back home. But because the father, who is representing God and extending his forgiveness to anyone who repents, because the father cannot wait any longer for the son to come all the way home, to forgive his son and to show mercy, he ignores decorum, pulls up his toga, and shamelessly runs to meet his son. Now again, we typically call this story the prodigal son. Yet, what does the word prodigal mean? It does not mean lost like some think it does. You can look it up. It means recklessly extravagant. Yes, the son is recklessly extravagant in the way he wasted his inheritance and the way he wasted his life. But the father is also recklessly extravagant in his love as he breaks with a cultural norm, runs to meet the son, and fully receives his son back into the family. So I prefer to call the parable the prodigal father because the emphasis is on the grace and forgiveness of our Heavenly Father when we repent. Now, regarding the episode that we're discussing with John and Peter after after they've walked hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles with Jesus for the better part of three and a half years, it's only the hope, their hope, of the risen Lord from death that accelerates their pace toward the tomb. Now, with the two men, it's Peter, acting according to his usual I got this behavior, who plunges into the darkness of the tomb. He sees the grave clothes neatly folded, which was obviously an intentional act on the part of somebody. All the evidence of the tomb on that first Super Sunday supports every claim that the disciples will make later about the resurrection and, in fact, die for that truth. They see that Jesus is gone. Then they return to tell the other apostles And eight days later, Jesus appears in the upper room with the apostles to show that he's not a ghost. And they discover that. And the greatest event in the history of the planet has just occurred, while a few months later, the Holy Spirit will show up on the day of Pentecost and the church begins. Praise the Lord for that. Now, Roman numeral two, conversion. Here's a question. How many times do you think a person typically needs to hear this resurrection good news before they fully commit to Jesus? Do they hear it five times, 20 times, 40 times? I think we need to accept the fact that there is no typical statistic that verifies the number of times one hears the message before they commit to Jesus. Now, if you remember One Greek word from this study that we've been doing in John, it should be the Greek word for believe, which is the Greek word pisteu, and it literally means to trust, to commit to, 
to put your weight down on, and in this case, of course, on Jesus. Believe is action. It's not a verb. It's not just academically agreeing with certain facts. But how many times do we need to hear the truth before we believe, before we commit all that we have to as much as we understand about Jesus? I don't know. But there are truths to know, two truths regarding conversion. First, conversion to Christ is a mystery. Jesus says in John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In other words, no human being on earth has the spiritual ability to commit to Jesus unless God the Father draws them by giving them the desire, the inclination, and the ability to place trust in Christ. So the first truth about how one commits to the Lord is a mystery of the invisible work of God. The second truth about conversion is that it is organic. In other words, it's a process rather than a one-time event. Now, one book I read called I Was Lost gives five thresholds, five doors, in other words, to open what must occur before one makes the final commitment. And so, Bill, should we wait for the break to uh, begin that list of you know, the it, doors? Yeah, if you're going to go through five, I think we should start fresh after the break. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're continuing our study on the book of John. We're in part two of our, our lesson on John chapter 20. So if you don't have your Bible out, grab it over the break. We'll be right back with Greg in just a minute. doors that need to be opened before a person is ready to make a commitment to give their life to Christ. We're learning about this from Dr. Greg Heddington. This is part two of our lesson on the book of John in chapter 20. All right, Greg, let's resume. All right, let's do that. Five doors. I read this book. I was lost. I thought it was really helpful. Five doors to open that must occur before one makes the final commitment to Christ. And of course, there are different kinds of indifferent people, and they remain indifferent for various lengths of time. But generally, the five thresholds that a person must cross before they commit to Jesus are, number one, they move from distrust to trust. In other words, somewhere along the line, they trust a believer. Number two, they move from complacency to curiosity. So they may appear to be indifferent, but something occurs and they become curious about Jesus. Number three, they move from being closed to change to being open to change in their life. Now, this seems to be the hardest threshold to cross for most people, but then something mysterious, something spiritual happens, and they cross that threshold. Number four, they move from meandering to seeking. Now, someone may talk about Jesus and even attend a Bible study, but they don't want to come to any conclusions or really seek answers until something wonderful occurs and they cross that threshold. And number five, finally, they cross the threshold of the kingdom itself. 
finally they know they must repent and believe and give their life to Jesus. Now, many people on this journey go through the first four thresholds, but never become believers, and many of us know those people. I think knowing these thresholds will help free some of us up because it's a mysterious path, and ultimately it's up to the Lord, but that does not relieve us of following the great commission of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19, when he says, go and make disciples. Now, that word for go in Greek literally means as you go. In other words, as you go about your life, make disciples of others through show and tell. Think of show and tell when you're in elementary school. You would show something and you'd tell about it. So you show people how your life is different by the excellent way you do your work, and all work glorifies God, and the way you behave, and then you tell them in your own natural way the difference Jesus has made in your life. Show and tell. That's the way Jesus did it. He showed it through miracles and his loving ways and many, many other things. Now, remember, no one can argue with anyone else's experience. You just can't. It was their experience. They were there, and we cannot argue with it. And when you know these thresholds, they can help you when you look at another person and ask yourself, I wonder where on the path that person is right now. And once we've figured out more or less where they are, then we can be more easily determine maybe what we can share with them and what they might need. Did you see the report not long ago that for the first time in 80 years, fewer than half of Americans say they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque? In fact, one in five Americans claim to have no religious affiliation. But that does not mean they have no interest in spiritual matters. In fact, statistics show that Google searches for prayer are at the highest ever recorded now during this pandemic. This moment right now may be the greatest evangelistic opportunity in many decades. So we don't want to miss that. Now let's look at the last few verses for this lesson. Roman numeral 3, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. When we left Peter and John at the tomb, they'd seen the grave clothes neatly folded without the body of Jesus in them. And Scripture says John believed, even though he admits his understanding was not complete, and the two men returned back to their homes. Meanwhile, Mary is weeping outside the tomb as she looks inside, sees the two men dressed in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been. Now, let me make a little aside at this point. Last week, I talked by phone to a longtime friend from Algeria, who's currently living outside of Algeria, who's considered the mother of the Algerian church. I never mention her name because she does not want to be recorded on tape. But for decades, she has been teaching church leaders and missionaries all over North Africa and the Middle East and keeps close tabs on dozens of workers for Jesus, even as the government has officially chain-locked all churches in Algeria, except right now they're allowing a few of the smaller churches to open up. Even so, reports continue to come in of hundreds of Muslims, particularly in Algeria, Iran, southern India, and northern Nigeria, who are having dreams and visions of Christ. And in most cases, Christ appears wearing dazzling white clothes, and I am not making this up, in many instances, that particular Muslim is told by Jesus in the dream or vision where, in the go, where to go in the city to find a Bible or where to go and meet a follower of Christ who will introduce them to the truth. After all, who is more creative than the Creator? And nothing will thwart him from his purpose being fulfilled even when other believers 
are threatened by the government if they share their faith. So that leads us to the question, since we are not threatened by our government, if we share our faith under the penalty of arrest, like many other places, the question is, are we sharing our faith? So Mary sees two angels in white. I suppose the angel's identity is unmistakable with their dazzling white. And she tells him she's she tells him she's weeping because her Lord has been taken away and she does not know where he is. Then she turns around and sees a man who asks why she's crying, for whom she's looking. Maybe she thinks he's a gardener because she has tears in her eyes or since it's dark because she asks if, if he knows where the body's been taken. But when he says the word Mary, just as sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd, she knows it is her Savior. Now, according to Matthew, she falls down, hugs his feet, and begins to worship him. But Jesus responds, Do not cling to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell the brothers that I will ascend to be with God my Father and God their Father. So she goes and tells the disciples that she has seen the Lord. Bible scholars have long debated the meaning of the phrase, Do not, <laughs> do not cling to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. For our purposes as believers, I think the point is all who love Jesus, beginning with Mary, must live without his physical presence because we learn to walk by faith and not by sight. We are now led and guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that is all we need in order to live for the Lord. As Jesus will tell his apostles in verse 29 of 20, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Mary, the woman formerly delivered from demons, not not a prostitute, but delivered from demons by Jesus, becomes the world's first missionary of the risen Lord. And now, ever since that day over 2,000 years ago, the first word a believer traditionally says to another believer on Easter, which we can call Resurrection Day, are the words, He is risen. And in that day, when the world is spoke Greek, the word is Christus Anesti, Christus Anesti, Christ is risen. We don't say he was risen. No, he is risen because we have a living Lord who empowers our lives every day. And the response to that statement is, he is risen indeed. Anathos Anesti. Now, when Jesus tells Mary, do not cling to me, he's telling her, do not hold on to the past, which you have known. Now there will be a new relationship with you, Mary, and you'll be my first witness to the other disciples that I am alive. So finally... The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is not an example of love. It is love itself. And I want to end with this quotation from one of the greatest early church fathers straight out of North Africa. Here's what Augustine wrote in the 4th century. Quote, What does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. I love that, Greg. What wonderful teaching. And some of the things in John 20, which I've studied, I've learned, and you've touched on so beautifully, one in particular is the grave clothes in the empty tomb. The one that was wrapped around the body of Jesus was sort of in a pile, but the one that was wrapped around his head was neatly folded and set aside. Yes. And I understand that was a fairly a, a regular tradition at dining tables. If you got up to go to the bathroom and you would fold your uh, napkin neatly and lay it to the side to let the server know that you were coming back. 
So oh, that, I love that, Bill. That was a, a fairly well-known uh, custom because these meals would last for hours and hours and hours, and sometimes you would step aside for, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes and then come back, and you would indicate to the server that you were returning. And so this little tidbit of Jesus folding the head, the cloth wrapped around his head, folding it neatly and laying it to the side says, I'm coming back, and everyone knew it. <laughs> and so we do today. Yes, yes. But, you that know, when you're, when you're done with your meal in a restaurant, you kind of take your napkin maybe and it goes into the middle of your plate. I'm done. That's, that is so interesting. Yeah. And that when, Mary, when um, Mary wanted to grab Jesus and hang on to him, it's like Jesus said, no, it's not going to be me. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that's going to come. That's right. That's and, absolutely right. Yeah. Such a fantastic study. I so appreciate uh, all the stats you gave us and and the and the, the teaching on John 20, part two. It's been excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, my great pleasure. Yeah. So thanks. Have a great rest of the day. And I will I'll look forward to continuing the study uh, with Dr. Greg Heddington on the book of John. And we'll, we'll organize all this on the web and get all these lessons put together in one place for you so you can uh, binge listen. All right. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with lots more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.